Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host Tyler Rouse. Today I wanted to cover the use of lasers in surgery. And not everyone is aware of how often lasers are used, or how many specialties actually take advantage of this technology. And I certainly learned a lot in researching the topic. As like most people in medicine I suspect, I simply took it for granted that lasers were used, without knowing how they worked, why they worked, or when they entered use in medicine. So let's focus in on lasers in this episode of Legends of Surgery. One of the first things I discovered, which some of you may already know, is that the word laser is actually an acronym. It stands for Light Amplification by Stimulated Emission of Radiation, L-A-S-E-R. So what does that mean? Well, we'll get into the physics of lasers a bit, and don't worry, I'll keep it to the basics. Then we'll talk about the early pioneers behind laser development, the first use of medical lasers in medicine, and then talk about some of the different types of lasers used. We'll also cover why different types of lasers are used in different situations and go over a few of the many examples of lasers in surgery. And stay tuned to the end for some fun bonus facts. So to begin, we have to talk about Max Planck, Albert Einstein, and some physical properties of light. In 1900, Max Planck, a German theoretical physicist, came up with what we now call quantum theory. That is, that light is released, transferred, and absorbed in specific packets of energy called quanta. He received the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1918 for this discovery. Now, Einstein, in 1917, published his work on quantum theory, suggesting that most electrons, remember those negatively charged particles that orbit the nucleus of atoms, exist in a ground energy state. Now, these can be converted to higher energy levels when energy is added to them, and when they return to the ground energy state, the energy is released spontaneously as photons or electromagnetic waves. Now, remember from high school physics that light can be thought of as both a particle, the photons, and as waves, the electromagnetic ones, which is called the wave-particle duality and actually was first proposed by Einstein. Anyways, when a photon of the same wavelength collides with an excited electron, two photons are released at the same time and therefore have equal frequencies, and this is what's called stimulated emission, so remember that, as it'll be important later. But it would take scientists nearly 40 years to be able to demonstrate this theory, proving Einstein correct. Now, the first idea of a laser, based on Planck's and Einstein's principles, would be a bit controversial, but was born on a park bench in the Bronx borough of New York. On November 13, 1957, Columbia University graduate student Gordon Gould jotted his ideas for building a laser in his notebook, and then asked the owner of a candy store, who was a notary public, to testify his script. It is considered the first use of the acronym LASER. Gould would leave the university a few months later to join the private research company TRG, which stood for Technical Research Group. Pretty creative. And here's a bizarre footnote. He had written a proposal to the Department of Defense for funding to build a laser. Now, the Pentagon, interested in developing a death ray, gave the project a million dollars and classified it. But because Gould had been in a Marxist study group in college, he couldn't get the necessary security clearance, and so the project was scrapped. Now, the following year, 1958, Charles H. Towns of Columbia University, who had come up with the Maser in 1951, which is a precursor to lasers, but rather the M stood for microwave amplification instead of light, was then working as a consultant for Bell Labs. He and his brother-in-law and fellow Bell Labs researcher Arthur L. Shaulow came up with lasers independently from Gould and were granted a patent for lasers. 
Nagul did not apply for a patent until 1959, mistakenly thinking that he needed a working apparatus before he could apply. Nagul and TRG would get into a 30-year patent dispute related to his laser invention. The famous notebook would be the focus of the court battle, and in 1977, Gould would receive his first patent on laser applications, but he wouldn't begin receiving any royalties from his patents until the early 1980s. It is nearly 25 years since that fateful day when he scribbled his idea in a notebook. Now, the first working laser was made by Theodore Maiman, a physicist at the Hughes Research Laboratories of the Hughes Aircraft Company in Malibu, California, which he did against his boss's wishes. He constructed it using a cylinder of synthetic ruby measuring one centimeter in diameter and two centimeters long, with the ends silver-coated to make them reflective, and a photographic flash lamp as the laser's energy source. This was all encased in an aluminum tube and was small enough to fit in his hand. The first successful firing of the laser was on May 16th of 1960, and it was announced to the world on July 7th, 1960, during a press conference in Manhattan. His paper in the journal Nature, called Stimulated Optical Radiation in Ruby, appeared on August 6th of 1960 and was described as, quote, more important per word than any of the papers published by Nature over the past century, end quote, by Charles Towns. Remember the Bell Labs inventor mentioned earlier. Now, weird historical side note. When Maiman created his laser, there was no standardized way to measure the strength of the beam, so he came up with the Gillette unit, which was defined as the number of Gillette razor blades the laser could cut through. Now, following this, many more materials were discovered that are capable of producing laser light, including dyes, gas mixtures, and semiconductor materials. But before we get into the specific ones that have become popular for use in surgery, let's quickly describe the theory and components of a laser. Ordinary white light is actually made up of many colors, or wavelengths, of the electromagnetic spectrum. For visible light, remember Roy G. Biv. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet, colors of the rainbow. Just below the visible spectrum is infrared, or below red, and at the other end is ultraviolet, or above violet. Laser light is different from ordinary light in that it is only one color in a very narrow range of wavelengths, and so is called monochromatic. Laser light is collimated, meaning that the light travels in a narrow beam with all waves in parallel, unlike ordinary light, which is spread in all directions. And finally, laser light has coherence, meaning the waves are highly ordered in space and correlated in time, which amplifies the power, creating extremely high power density in an area small enough to cause tissue damage. Now, the components of a laser include a laser medium, such as ruby, that de determines the wavelength of the system, which is enclosed between two parallel mirrors, one of which is partially reflecting and partially transmitting. So the electrons in the laser medium are made to change energy levels by an excitation source or some external energy, whether it be a flash lamp or an electric current or even another laser. At the right level, this energy is absorbed by the electrons, moving them to a higher but less stable energy level. When they return to the lower level state, they spontaneously release a photon, just like Einstein described. Now, if this photon is near another atom with electrons in the excited state, it will trigger the release of another photon of laser light, hence the stimulated emission, the SE part of the word laser. Now, these two photons of identical energy then travel together in perfect step and will be amplified by yet more atoms releasing photons. Now, eventually, the number of electrons in the excited state is greater than the number in the ground state, which is called population inversion. When the laser is activated, it begins to release these excited photons in all directions, but a small subset travels along the center line of the laser system between the two mirrors, which reflect them back into the medium, amplifying the stimulated emission. 
partially transmitting mirror then allows a powerful cohesive beam of photons to be released as laser light. All right, that was a lot of technical stuff. Basically, that's the idea. Now let's cover the history of the use of lasers in surgery, and then we'll get back to a little bit more theory covering why they actually work. Now amazingly, it was only a year and a half from the first demonstration of a functioning laser that the technology was applied to humans. Ophthalmologists quickly realized that laser light could pass through the clear parts of the eye to reach the dark red tissue of the retina at the back of the eye. That's the part that receives images. On November 22, 1961, while working alongside Dr. Charles Coaster, who was a representative of American Optical Company, which had supplied the laser, Dr. Charles J. Campbell of the Institute of Ophthalmology at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in Manhattan became the first to use a laser on a patient. He utilized the device to treat a patient's retinal tumor. In this case, it was an angioma, which is a benign tumor of blood vessels, but in a very bad spot, and was able to destroy it by a single pulse that lasted about one thousandth of a second. Now, this was far faster and more comfortable than the 1,000-watt xenon arc lamps that had been used as an artificial light source since the 1950s. Made by Carl Zeiss Laboratories, remember podcast 57 on surgical microscopes, uh, these instruments produced light from the passage of a high-intensity electrical arc through a chamber of xenon gas emitting light in a spectrum similar to the sun. Now, the creator of the xenon arc lamp was one Dr. Gerhard Meyer Schwickerath, who had been inspired to use artificial sunlight to treat retinal disease after observing the effects of a solar eclipse on patients' retinas. Public service announcement, as you might remember from the recent solar eclipse, do not look directly at the sun during one, or really any time. Now from there, a number of different types of lasers were invented, which have their own specific properties and applications. Now there's too many to cover in one podcast, so we'll just focus on a few of the more common ones. Many of you may have heard of the YAG laser. This is short for Yttrium Aluminum Garnet, which is a solid-state crystal. Now, yttrium is a rare earth element, which is number 39 in the periodic table. Aluminum is, of course, a metallic element, and garnet is a crystal, which is dark red like the color name garnet. A couple interesting things there. So the name is thought to derive from the Latin granitus, meaning grain or seed, and may be a reference to pumum granitum, which we all know as pomegranates, which have dark red or garnet-colored seeds. Also, my high school colors were garnet gray. Go Lions. Anyways, the first YAG laser was invented in June of 1962 out of Bell Labs, and by 1964, the ND YAG, the ND stands for neodymium doped, was created again in Bell Labs, and neodymium is a silvery metal element. In 1964, Kumar Patel, again in Bell Labs, invented the carbon dioxide laser, which was the most powerful continuously operating laser of its time. Now, this was the first invisible laser, meaning the emitted laser light was not in the visible spectrum of light, and used a gas as the laser medium. Now, if you've ever seen a CO2 laser used in the operating room, you'll have noticed a red dot which is used to target the area of interest. Now, this is not the laser itself, but rather a guide for aiming the laser. Another group of lasers are called ion lasers, which use an ionized noble gas as the lasing medium to create a laser beam in the visible light spectrum. Now, one commonly used medium is argon, and the argon laser was invented in 1964 by William Bridges at Hughes Aircraft Company, the very same one where Maiman made the first working laser. Now, another ion laser uses krypton as the medium. I know, krypton is real, not just Superman's weakness. Fun fact. The name comes from the Greek cryptos, meaning the hidden one. Pretty cryptic. So how do lasers affect tissues? 
A laser beam can either pass through a tissue type, leaving it unscathed, or it'll be absorbed by that tissue. The key is selective absorption, meaning choosing a wavelength of the laser light that is preferentially absorbed by one component of a tissue, leaving the surrounding tissues unaffected. If the rate of energy absorption is low, then thermal or heat energy is produced, essentially burning that tissue. And this is called selective photothermolysis. Now, if the rate of energy absorption is high, shock waves can form, which can cause explosive mechanical disruption. The noble gas ion lasers target hemoglobin, which is found in red blood cells, and melanin, which is the naturally occurring pigment, which gives color to our hair, eyes, and skin. Albinos lack this ability to produce melanin. Now, the only chromophore, which is any substance that absorbs light uh, for the CO2 lasers, is water. Therefore, as all tissues contain water, the effect isn't selective, but all the incident energy is absorbed in the tissue water down to a specific depth, preventing deeper tissue damage. The cool thing is that the diameter of the beam can be changed, so a very focused beam causes instant vaporization and ablation of the tissue, and this can be used to cut tissue, but a wider, less focused beam has a more bulk vaporization or coagulation effect, helping to burn surface lesions but not penetrating deep into the tissues. The CO2 laser is the workhorse of medical lasers and can be found in nearly every OR. The YAG laser doesn't have a specific chromophore or tissue target, but has more of a scattering effect. This decreases the ability to penetrate tissue and makes it ideal for controlling things like surface bleeding, so for hemostasis, and tumor necrosis, basically killing tumor cells. Now, Because of the intense focus of lasers, the tissue involved can heat up very quickly. To avoid heat damage spreading to the surrounding tissues, most Lasers are pulsed rather than continuous, allowing for very short periods of cooling between applications of the laser. Now, because of all these different options, lasers can be used in all sorts of applications and are found in ophthalmology, lithotripsy, cancer treatment, and removing of skin lesions and tattoos, as well as even cosmetic procedures. Now, since ophthalmology was the first to utilize lasers, we'll start with them. The ion lasers are frequently used to treat diseases of the retina, such as retinal detachment, glaucoma, and macular degeneration. But one particularly good use is in treating diabetic retinopathy, which is a process that causes leaking blood vessels that the laser can target and seal. And of course, most people think of laser eye surgery when talking about lasers in ophthalmology. Now, this uses something called an excimer laser to ablate rather than burn tissue, making it very precise and useful on delicate tissues. Now, the media used are what are called noble gas halides, which are a mix of reactive and inert gases. This was invented at the IBM Research Center, and a New York City ophthalmologist named Stephen Trokel worked with the research group experimenting with the laser. In 1983, they released a paper introducing the idea of using lasers to reshape or sculpt the cornea, that's that clear front part of the eye that helps focus vision, to correct refractive errors, or poor vision. In 1987, Dr. Trokel first used a laser on a patient's cornea, which was work that would eventually lead to what we now know as laser eye surgery. All right, let's talk about lithotripsy. This is the destruction of stones and comes from the Greek litho, meaning stone, think monolith, and tripsis from the Greek for rubbing or friction. Lasers can be used in a number of ways, either by heating the stones up, like in tissues, or by creating shock waves in the stone, causing them to break apart. A commonly used laser is based on coumarin dye, which is synthesized now, but was originally discovered as a naturally occurring compound in plants and actually is the cause of that sweet smell of freshly mown hay. It works well because it produces a green laser light that is absorbed by the yellow-colored urinary calculi, or stones, causing shockwaves that break up the stone without being absorbed by the surrounding tissue. 
Lasers can also be used to treat cancers as mentioned, and this can be particularly useful to treat lesions that are very superficial such as early stomach or esophageal cancers to avoid or delay more radical surgery. Lasers can also be used to treat tumors that are inaccessible by a standard surgical approach such as in neurosurgery where sensitive structures limit resection or the lesion lies deep in the brain such as at the base of the skull or the ventricles. The principles include photothermal effect, which is heating up the tissue to destroy it, photomechanical reactions, which cause fragmentation of the tissue, and even photochemical effects, where the laser creates free radicals, which cause death of the tissue. Another interesting use of lasers is to treat abnormal heartbeats, such as atrial fibrillation. This is done by passing a catheter into the large blood vessels near the heart, inflating a balloon filled with deuterium oxide, or so-called heavy water, which doesn't absorb laser light. The laser which is aimed at the wall of the blood vessel is activated and the tissues under the surface are heated up and destroying or ablating the source of the abnormal signals, but doesn't burn the surface because it is protected by the heavy water-filled balloon. Finally, lasers can be used on the skin to target pigments such as in tattoo removal and hemoglobin in red blood cells, which allows for targeting of lesions made of abnormal blood vessels, including a number of birthmarks and other vascular lesions like port wine stains. Now, since collagen can also be specifically targeted, Lasers can be used for cosmetic purposes, smoothing out the skin to make it look younger. Lasers in surgery remain popular, of course, and the number of applications seems only limited by the imagination. And as we've seen, it took some imagination for pioneering surgeons to take something that when first invented was described as, quote, a solution in search of a problem, end quote. But find them they did, creating a blending of basic science and medicine that continues to benefit society. And of course, lasers have solved many problems, and are used in industry for cutting, welding, and drilling, 3D scanning, surveying, astronomy, military applications, to even everyday things like barcode scanners and playing CDs and DVDs. So let's end with a couple of fun facts. On June 26, 1974, a pack of Wrigley's chewing gum became the first product read by a barcode scanner in a grocery store. In October of 1982, the audio CD debuted. Any guesses as to which album was the first to be released on CD? It was Billy Joel's 1978 album, 52nd Street. Now you know. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. The subject of the next episode actually comes from one of our listeners who suggested the topic of Dr. William House and the invention of the cochlear implant. It's going to be a good one. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>